Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi is back for a second visit. This time we talk about her most recent book, The Frank Perdue Way, and Leading with Humility. Mitzi also shares some encouraging news about the work underway to combat human trafficking and her advocacy in that arena. Hello, Mitzi. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again. Well, I am looking forward to this because you're always doing something interesting, and we look forward to learning more about your most recent project. Some of the listeners who will be enjoying this podcast know you quite well. They know you personally. Others, not at all. They may recognize your last name, and that's about it. I'd ask you to tell us a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you are doing today. Well, I'd love to answer that question. My interest in family businesses comes about because my family of origin began as a family business in 1840. And I'm not sure I can do math in my head fast enough. I think, let's see, 60, 80, 182 years ago. Uh, My family by marriage, the Purdue family, we've been in business for 101 years. And You know, the interesting thing is the odds of having a long-lasting family business making it to 100 years. I'm going to give you a second to guess, but I don't want to put you on the spot. But just in your mind. I'm thinking very, very tiny. So many things can get in the way of that kind of longevity. Well, the odds are one in a thousand. Wow. And the biggest reasons that families break up It's not that they made bad investments, although that could happen, or they had bad legal or tax advice or something. Yeah, that happens, but it's a small percentage of what goes wrong. What really goes wrong is family dynamics, family quarrels. And the odds, yeah, the the figures I'm going to share with you are a little bit controversial, but I think they're directionally correct. The odds of a family making it to the next generation are only 30%. Not good. So... What, what have I learned from my two families that help keep family businesses together across the generations? And my particular focus in my latest book is has to do with Frank Perdue and how he made a success of his business, including you know, the family aspect of it, but also just like the human aspect of, of what enabled Frank to be so successful in so many ways. Great. I'm looking forward to that. But first, I need to ask you a question that just pops up in my mind when I think about something you've written, somewhere you've spoken, some podcasts that you've been on. You are so passionate and devoted to, I'll say, publishing in the widest of senses. 
what motivates you to do so much and to have done it for so long? Oh, what what, what a nice flattering question. I've, I've never been asked that, but <laughs> let me, uh, I have heard that the most interesting answers are improv, where you're in a higher wire without a net and you don't know what you're going to say. And that's the kind of answer I'm going to give you. Perfect. I think I do it uh, because, and this is really presumptuous of me even to think this, but I think over the years and because of family background, I know some things that can make other people's lives better. And Mother Teresa, whom I admire enormously, said, the good that we can do, we must do. And I figure that I have the chance of, of helping people have happier family lives and happier business lives. Wonderful improv answer. Fantastic. So now my next question is, I know you have a background in journalism. How has that helped you over the years in keeping this passion alive? Well, I love writing. First of all, I've even wondered if it's genetic because I like it so much. But again, it's the same thing. A, a deep desire to share important information that can help other people. And, you know, it started out before I was writing about family businesses. I wrote about food and agriculture hmm. because for a good bit of my life, uh, I was in agriculture. You're speaking to, and I've got to pronounce this carefully, you'll mishear me, a rice farmer. Rice okay. as in the stuff that you eat with chopsticks. Very good. Well, I found that uh, when I was writing about food and agriculture, I could tell people that could help them with, say, nutrition or how to select or store a particular food. And I loved it. I, I was doing that for maybe 10 years. And then gradually I switched over to writing about the environment. And I could give people you know, tips on how to be good environmental stewards. And it wasn't that I knew the information, it's that I inter interviewed experts. And somehow that gradually sort of eased over into talking about family businesses, and I can give you the reason why. Okay. I was once at a group of 16 women, we called ourselves the Famous Last Names Club, and we got to talking about how well we related with our families. And most of them related terribly. That, for example, you know, they had lawsuits against each other or two brothers were trying to squeeze out a sister and would never let her be part of family business meetings. Or another, their big problem was the future heir had a drug problem. And what I got from, from this meeting as we went around the table and everybody told their woes that when it's not going right with your family, it permeates every hour of every day and it's misery. On the other hand, when a family is high-functioning, it's joy. And since I feel that I get joy from both my families, I, I have a great uh, kind of itch or desire to share what I know works. And the rest of us benefit. We are grateful for it and grateful that you are as prolific as you are and enjoy it as much as you do. Well, thank you. So let's jump in and talk a bit about the most recent book that you have out. And as you know, my particular interest is in conflict, and that is preventing the nasty type and encouraging the type that is collaborative and creative. We have different opinions, but we can still talk about it. So tell us a little bit about this book and why this particular topic right now. Uh, this particular topic, uh, it's about my late husband, Frank Perdue. And 
Yeah, Frank Perdue had many things to offer the world, but among them, this is a man who I feel had it all because he started with no employees, ended his life employing and providing living for 20,000 employees and somewhere around 5,000 farmers. So, yeah, not bad if you're providing a livelihood for 25,000 people. But on top of that, he was a family man. He had four children, 12 grandchildren, and I think a happy, I hope I can say this, a happy family life. And then he was also a community man. He was very, very good with supporting the community. And we, we have facilities in, at the time of his death, 16 different areas. He would be active in the communities of all of them, supporting like the fire service or the local hospital or whatever. So I, I'd love to share tips from Frank Perdue on having it all. So many things we could talk about. But a few things have really struck me that you've mentioned as some of the tips that are particularly good to share. One of them is, and I find this can be a challenging thing for me to wrap my head around, how to be a good leader and also be someone that people feel they can talk to, they can offer suggestions, they can say, but I don't agree, couldn't we do it some other way? How did he make that work? Well, one of the things is, I, I would say that he had a lot of humility to him. And among the things that he did, well, one of the things I thought was just spectacular is he was a real good listener. And I can be very specific what I mean by that. I used to watch, if he was in a group, and this is in almost every occasion that I can think of, he would speak 10% of the time and listen 90% of the time like if he was in a sales meeting or talking with a taxi driver or just anybody, he'd ask some very directed questions that would make the person feel important, and then he'd listen. And when he was listening, he wasn't thinking, yeah, what am I going to say next? No, his responses were always show that he's really listening to you 100% of the time. And then building on that idea of listening, I used to watch when he'd go into a room of people whose paychecks he signed, you know, employees or in Purdue speak associates. And I know that he was careful not to let people know ahead of time what outcome he wanted because mm. he was perfectly aware that the temptation to rock yourself into a pretzel and say the thing, you know, the boss wants to hear. Yes. He knew that. And so he'd be careful that you wouldn't know the outcome he was looking for. And so I asked him, why? And he said, none of us is as smart as all of us. And there's a lot of wisdom and experience and knowledge in the room. And my job is to tap into it. And I don't want to shortcut or short circuit the, the learning by having them talk to please me and think what I want. No, I want to learn what they have in mind. And then building on that thought, I found him to an astonishing degree. I've never seen it in anybody else. Eager to hear conflicting ideas, to hear ideas that disagree with him. In fact, over and over again, it was, it was just something he did. He wanted to know the bad news rather than the good news. And my favorite example of his being good with conflict is he had a person the guy's name was Don Babe, who started out kind of in the lowest rung if you're a poultry science graduate. So he started out you know, really low down in, in the hierarchy, 
as a, what's called a serviceman. Okay. A serviceman visits different chicken houses and is available for advice from chicken farmer. You know, what's the latest? What, what have we just learned about whatever? So a serviceman, it's kind of a low-level veterinarian. It's not okay. a veterinarian, but he can answer questions. Mm-hmm. All right, so Don Mabe started out as a serviceman. Along the way, for the next probably, I'm going to say 30 years, maybe 35 years, his interaction with Frank was always quarreling. Oh, my goodness. And it would even get to the point, there, there was one case that I know of where there was a sales meeting and Don May got so mad at Frank that Don May picked his glasses from off his nose, threw them down on the conference table. The glasses bounced once and hit Frank right in the chest. And as, as this was happening, Don Wade was saying, why don't you take up hang gliding? Translation, hang gliding is, is a possibly lethal hobby. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is a really hostile thing to say to somebody whose name appears in your paycheck. Yes. And so how did Frank react to that? First of all, Frank never held grudges. And at the end of the meeting, they were walked out of the conference room together, kind of laughing with each other. The person that Frank chose to become the president when Frank stopped being president was Don May. The person who quarreled with him most was the person that Frank had enough respect for, enough respect for Don's really caring, because you have to care when you quarrel. And his backbone, that's the person Frank chose to follow him. That's fascinating. And I'm interested in all different aspects of that. One is... Did everyone see this coming? Or was there a sense of this is a complete surprise? And also, to the extent you can guess at this or knew this, how did other people perceive this? Was this a special relationship and only these two could have this sort of bickering? Or did it allow others to feel, well, if he can do that, I can tiptoe in that direction? I would say that everybody felt comfortable moving in that direction. I think Don Mabe was probably more ordinary than most, <laughs> more unfiltered than most. But Frank had no use for yes men. You weren't gonna you weren't gonna win a whole lot of points with Frank by being yes men. You asked if people saw it coming. I think they did because Don Mabe just rose through the ranks so rapidly and I think he had visibility by uh-huh. and Frank valued it because Don Mabe's approach to the world was somewhat cautious. I think Frank respected that here was somebody who was holding his enthusiasm maybe down to earth a little bit more. So I I think Frank absolutely felt the value of somebody who was making up or balancing his super enthusiasm. That's fascinating. I want to go back and ask you about Frank's, hmm, what's the word I want? I don't know if it's an ability, if it's a passion, if it's a need. To listen, what motivated that, do you think? I think there was an element of humility in it. I'll I'll give you my reason for thinking the element of humility. Because Frank, in spite of being an uber successful person, had a lot of humility to him. And here's, here's my reason for thinking that, well, I remember him saying that he wasn't that smart himself. But he said he had the good fortune to be surrounded by smart people. So I think to some extent, he really believed that. I find it hard to believe, but I do think he believed it. And here's another reason why I believe humility played a role in it. 
I love to study body language. And not that I'm any expert, but I, I do watch YouTubes on it. I read books on it. I talk with people about body language. And here's what I observed with Frank. When he'd go into a meeting, remember, he's, he's the alpha male. He's the person whose name appears on the checks. But his body language, you know, he could have been the big boss taking up space, using up all the oxygen, making great big gestures, chest out. But he didn't. He did not have the body language of the big boss. No, he had good posture, but it was verging on almost, I don't know, shoulders forward a little bit. Not quite hunched, but Mm -hmm. that direction. And the gestures would be small. And he was communicating by body language that we're all equals. And I'm interested in what you have to say. He, He didn't use up all the oxygen. So, Mitzi, do you think that the body language was conscious or is it just part of him? I'm going to go with just part of him. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say, I'm not sure because Frank was 20 layers deeper than you ever expect. So maybe he was, but I don't, I don't think he had the academic interest in it that I did. Right. He may just have been conscious that you get farther in, in drawing people out if, if you don't overwhelm them. So I'm, I'm giving you two answers to the same well, that's question. Fine. I, I don't expect anything straight and narrow. It's much more interesting and fun to Think about these things from different angles, because we can't all be frank. Well, whether it was conscious or not, I don't know. Yeah. But unconsciously, I, I'm certain, because I saw him do it every time. Right. The body language communicated, you can speak to me, I'm not going to bite your head off. Yeah, you know, we're part of a team. Right, right. And I'm sure, not simply because he was a direct boss for some people, but as you say, his name's on the pain check, his name is on the business. It is so easy, I would think. For people to be completely intimidated and never dare to say a word, certainly not a word of disagreement. So quite magical that he cultivated and continued to use this ability to let people feel they could speak to him. You know, I'd like to share something else that I observed. And again, there may be other people who do this, but in, uh, in my 80 years, I've never seen anybody do it to the extent that Frank could do it. Say we're walking through a processing plant. Maybe there are a thousand people who work there. It would be the easiest thing in the world for Frank to march through with his nose in the air. You know, I'm a big boss. Not at all. Instead, the number of people he'd talk with and whose names he knew was just endless. And he'd know things about them like, you know, Macy's son just got into college or Antonio hasn't had a sick day in 30 years or just he wouldn't just know the person's name he'd know something about them and by the way i've seen jim purdue did the same thing so that right um, do you think jim learned from frank or is it just a natural trait again again hard to know but he uh-huh. sure had you know if he's going to follow the master that's what it do <laughs> so yeah i guess i guess i'm going to lean towards the idea that he just learned it from his father but i think both men have the instinct of being egalitarian something else that 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 Frank did, he could have eaten in the fanciest restaurants in town every day. Most often he didn't. He'd eat in the employee cafeterias, whether it was the processing plant or Purdue headquarters. And at the processing plant, I loved it because he'd just sit with employees in the line, ask how they were, how they were doing. Uh, you know, it was just collegial. It wasn't, you know, you're beneath me. No, I'm really interested in you. 
And I think you've talked about how he made people think he cared about them. And it's not, it's not an act. He truly did. Well, I'll give you an example to prove that, which is very often on Saturdays. I would say most Saturdays if we were traveling, he would find from his administrative assistant who was hospitalized, who was a, a Purdue associate. When you employ that many people, just by the law of averages, there will be people who are ill. Maybe they've had appendicitis, you know, whatever. And it could be as many as 10 people. We would go visit the Purdue associates in the hospital. And then if it happened to be a day when there weren't many, that there was still time left over, he'd call and retire people. I mean, he, he didn't just care for them because they were working for the company. He cared for them, retired or not. Certainly what's coming to my mind is demonstrating an extraordinarily large and generous definition of family. Yeah. Or, you know, even something else. And this has to do with funerals. And I'm going to sound horrible when I tell you this, but here That's goes. quite all right. <laughs> it, it's part of life. We're all going to die someday. Okay. Before I met Frank, I attended funerals because it was sort of a grim social obligation. But then I learned from Frank a whole different attitude. And it was, he went because he really felt he could be supportive. I mean, he did it with a full heart and with generosity rather than grim duty. And I trust and hope that I've improved over the years and that I have a more generous spirit now. But his was just heartfelt. There, there was no, there was nothing other than I would be there to support the family of somebody who's passed. It is truly remarkable. And I have to say, I have no doubt about your generous spirit. And because of that, I want us to pivot to something else, which is the important work that you are doing in advocacy. Tell us a bit about that. Uh huh. Well, as a matter of fact, can I warn people ahead of time that I'm going to give a text number because I'd love for people to contact me. And we'll put it in the show notes, but definitely you can repeat it as many times as you like. Make sure people get it every possible way. Okay. Well, I'll say it once. To contact me about this, text W-I-N, as in WIN, to 55312. And since I'm certain people, maybe you're driving or whatever, and you can't write it down right off, I will repeat it. And I'm, I'm so happy that you're putting it in the show notes. But the thing that I'm involved in right now is working to combat human trafficking. And my approach to it, because you know, I don't have any expertise in rescue or restoration or, or much of anything, but what I can do is I'm a writer by trade, and I've written almost 100 articles, most often for Psychology Today, on organizations that are doing great things and how, how they go about solving the problem. I think we're approaching 200 podcasts on specifically on human trafficking. So my efforts are kind of focused on awareness raising, and then I've done some fundraising. I'm so glad that you have a chance to tell us about it, because the more people hear about it from whatever direction, the better. I was talking with uh, an official from UBS, the financial institution, and It seems to me that one of their biggest charitable efforts, I'm I'm not speaking for them, so I don't know this is true, but it sure looks like this to me, is that they want to combat human trafficking on a a very holistic way. And they're doing something so exciting, I can hardly stand it. I want to help with this in any way I can. What if 
actually, it's not hypothetical. They are doing what I'm about to describe. Mm-hmm. And that is, they're working to eliminate human trafficking in one country, namely Bangladesh. Okay. And the way they're doing it is they're working to get expertise and knowledge, whether it's academic or non-governmental organizations, people on the ground, people who are theoreticians, just as far as I can tell, the whole wisdom of the world, focusing on how could you eliminate trafficking in one country? And the way they're going about it, it's like like right now, the chances of somebody who's a trafficker doing jail time, it's like four out of a thousand are, are going to be prosecuted. Right. But what if you could change that? Oh, my goodness, the amount of work it would take to get there, but they're tackling it. Or what if you could do more about education or jobs or just attacking the problem from every aspect that you can think of? And then here's the glorious part of the part that excites me most. They're going to learn from this, and it might be a five-year effort to get to the point of what I'm about to describe. But imagine in five years if they've really succeeded. They'll know best practices. It will be scalable. They'll be able to take it to the rest of the world. Wow. That is exciting. I love ending on a positive note about something that's a terrible challenge. So, Mitzi, let me ask you, tell us the text again, and then where can people learn about the book, buy the book, learn about your other work related to family businesses and those best practices? Oh, Jane, you're really hurting me with those questions, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, first, for... uh, to repeat how to get hold of me. By the way, here's what you'll get if you text WIN to 55312. You'll get the articles that I write. They're usually one a week, but they tell inspirational stories about people who've been combating trafficking. And they're usually, no, I'd say they're always full of hope. They're good people addressing a horrible problem. And if they want, oh, I'd love it if they would. If they would like to buy any of the books that I've written, go to Amazon. And look for Mitzi Purdue, and you'll find the latest book, The Frank Purdue Way, which I've been describing during our time together. Well, certainly the most recent. So if if, if you sort by recent, that's what you'll get, The Frank Purdue Way. And I've, I'm working on another one right now. I'm working on two. One is a biography of Mark Victor Hansen, the chicken soup with soul guy. Okay. I've already uh, interviewed about 70 people for it. And then... I'm in the home stretch of a fiction book, Rich Widows. My goodness, so much going on and so much fun to talk with you to hear at least a little bit about all of these exciting projects. Thank you again, Mitzi. I'm delighted we had a chance to chat again. And of course, I will put that information in the show notes and people can find you that way. Well, I always love talking with you. So thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please tell a friend, share it, leave a rating or review. When you spread the word, more people have a chance to enjoy the show. You can also sign up for new weekly episodes on your favorite app. Whatever setting works best for you and is free. You don't need to pay to listen. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.